1: Welcome, everybody, back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Today, we are visiting with Michael Camp. Michael is the type of person who does whatever he does with gusto. During his 25 years as an evangelical Christian, he actually lived out the logic of his beliefs by serving in Africa for seven years as a missionary. Eventually, he went through a dramatic faith shift, landing in a place where God is much more inclusive and gracious and patient than he had ever imagined. Michael is most passionate about empowering marginalized people pursuing an authentic spirituality and helping others who struggle with legalistic and spiritually abusive religious systems. He is interested in helping people to know about a fresh, historically grounded approach to the Christian faith. He is the author of Craft Brewed Jesus, How History We Never Knew Taps a Spirituality We Really Need. As you can tell from the title of his book, he is an enthusiast for good, locally made microbrews. <laughs> he is an active member of Rotary Club International, an outstanding service organization. Michael and his wife have raised four children. He is a marketing director for a company which sells business software. He also enjoys hiking, backpacking, fishing, golfing, or mountain biking with his wife, family, and friends in the Pacific Northwest. Michael interviewed me on his podcast, which is called The Spiritual Brew Pub. His interview with me is episode 22 of the Spiritual Brewpub podcast, and it is entitled The Necessity of Christian Universalism. And now, Michael, it is my turn to get to interview you. So welcome, Michael Camp, to the Grace Saves All podcast.
2: David, thanks for having me on. This is great. It's good to see you.
1: Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the interview that we did together. It was a fun interview. I just re-listened to it. Uh, the other day, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and, and so I would encourage everybody from my podcast that listens to this to go over to the uh, go over to your podcast and take a listen to the interview you did with me. But uh, let's get to you. Uh, you've got quite an interesting an interesting story. Uh, you know, I didn't. I, I grew up outside of church and had kind of a glancing blow with fundamentalism, but but you seem to to uh, in your spiritual journey, you kind of landed right in the middle of it with gusto. Yeah, I so sure how, how, did. Did, how did that happen? <laughs> Were you raised in church or did you then just get into this or how did it happen?
2: Well, it was, uh, it wasn't immediate. My family, um, uh, I was kind of raised up until I was 14 years old in a, what I guess I would call a liberal Methodist church in Massachusetts. And, but my mom, she was very religious and she came from Virginia, uh, and, uh, Dad was a little bit religious but he was more scientific but mom basically finally you know talked my dad into going to a the 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 local evangelical baptist charismatic believe it or not church down the street mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay, when so i was 14 years street, old Well,
1: Baptist and and charismatic is kind of an interesting combination. It's a a
2: very interesting combination.
1: (laughs) Usually those two don't go together.
2: They don't, but uh, in this case, they did. And um, uh, they weren't heavily charismatic, you know, like rolling on the aisles, uh, speaking in tongues every Sunday. But they definitely, they did more of that in smaller groups, you know, the home group type setting. But Anyways, mom uh, got us into that church. Uh, My dad finally uh, came in a little bit kicking and screaming, but um, I think that was just like a a milestone in my life because mom was so happy about being in this church, and she started evangelizing us kids, and uh, she got me into youth group, and uh, uh, I'm going to date myself here, but in 1972, there was this very famous Jesus festival called x 72 in Dallas, Texas. And uh, it was sponsored by Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Mm -hmm. Billy Graham was there. Some um, Christian musicians were there, like Chuck Girard, uh, Andre Crouch, um, even Johnny Cash. (laughs) Wow. Uh, And uh, my mom, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the youth group, decided to go to this Jesus festival and I was in the youth group. So Uh at 15 years old, I got my introduction to real, you know, Bible belts, evangelical Christianity. And eventually, you know, uh, through um, some experiences in my life uh, and the fact that uh, the evangelical church was basically teaching me to be afraid, uh, you know, because if I didn't accept Jesus, things wouldn't go well for me. I would never find peace in my life, they told me, if I didn't accept Christ um, and other things like, you know, the doctrine of hell and uh, other teachings. Eventually, I started thinking maybe because I was feeling like such a uh, a, a rudderless teenager, maybe it was because I didn't have Christ in my life. And eventually, uh, I went through the motions and actually had a very a uh, real spiritual experience, but it was actually isolated from the church. Uh, and I real, and then later on, I realized that my my experience was not really didn't really fit with the church's theology. Huh. So that was about, but that was more in my college age. I was probably twenty two when I finally really got into the church and called myself a born again Christian.
1: Well, then now there's some point in here in which you go overseas and become a missionary that's you know that's a step that most people don't take well is that was that something was that something that that was just on your heart that if this is all true then i need to go and try to save people that don't know about it
2: yeah partially um you know i I was very sincere i i had a nervous breakdown in college and i felt like um there something spiritual happened to me to help me get over that and I started meeting. There were some good things in the evangelical church. I was in intervarsity Christian Fellowship in college, and um, you know, you know, there was. Uh, I was kind of welcomed like a hero because I got saved from the quote the party drug culture, drinking culture, and came into their group. And um, uh, I was, uh, I got uh, indoctrinated into a lot of. Uh, ways of thinking, and one of them was that you know we had to share the gospel not only with our neighbors, but with uh, everyone around the world because um, Jesus was coming back soon, and Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, uh, so and so forth. So I dove off the deep end. I really got. Uh, v- I was very sincere. Um, I took things very seriously, and when they challenged me to do something, I usually tried to do it. And Mm -hmm. eventually I got into the missions movement. And uh, the first time I went overseas was 1982. And I got involved with um, uh, an organization called Food for the Hungry, which was a Christian aid organization, but it was also uh, evangelistic to some degree. And so I joined that uh, Hunger Corps uh, program. A Christian version of the Peace Corps, so to speak, and mm-hmm. went to East Africa for two years.
1: Now, when you were in, now, as I understand your story, when when you were there, though, you had this encounter with these people, and you realized that that these were not people that needed to go to hell, basically.
2: Yeah, what, you know what? What happens is um, when you go overseas. Uh, for a long period of time as a missionary if you really open your eyes you start to see that you know um, this is the real world this is not just sitting in a pew and theorizing that we need to reach these people and they have to accept Christ or else you know they'll go to hell or they'll be separated from God forever or you know whatever the the fear is is instilled and when you When I arrived in um, Somalia, it was before the Civil War in the the early 80s, um, it was a fairly stable country. I was working with refugees from Ethiopia. Uh, The overwhelming majority of them were Muslims. And um, I became very good friends with uh, Somali Muslims, Oromo Muslim Muslims, uh, and worked with them we did prod. they worked on projects i was i was the bo- i was the supervisor of some of them and mm-hmm. and others uh, i met were you know like you know leaders in the refugee camp or or whatever and i started to realize that you know i had this love for these people and they're friends of mine and all of a sudden my evangelical theology was telling me um uh you know if they don't accept christ they're going to be lost forever and they're all their ancestors, all the people before them. They haven't hadn't accepted Christ because these were, Muslim, these people had been Muslims for generations, and so presumably they had gone to hell.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. And so unless we did some fast and furious Bible thumping, these people didn't have a very good uh, afterlife. And uh, so um, yeah, and there were you know you know to be fair, there were a few people that that kind of listened to what we had to say about. Jesus and you know uh, Christianity as legalistic as it is, it's not quite as legalistic as some streams of Islam and probably most streams of Islam. and um, so you know it you know people were interested, but the overwhelming majority of people uh, they were entrenched in their religion and their culture and and you know they weren't going to change and so I realized there's something wrong with my theology now. I didn't in, immediately become a universalist but I kind of put that in that was my my first major red flag and I put it in the back of my mind and I came up with a more inclusive theology um but didn't really share it with anyone because it, I knew that the church would not like that view and that you know that would that would cause uh, that would rock the boat so to speak
1: well, it's interesting when you put yourself in a ministry position and you're interacting with people who your theology or the church maybe tells you is beyond the bounds of God's love. Mm-hmm. Yet you feel the love of God for them, right? And you feel this connection with them, and so your lived experience just doesn't match with your theology.
2: That's absolutely correct. Yeah, it does not match. It's a it's a cognitive dissonance that occurs in you and you, you don't really know what to do with it. So, I mean, I did a little bit of research and I, I found out that there were a few evangelicals that were more inclusive and they, they said, yeah, you know, maybe God, you know, like Tony Campolo. And then later on, I learned Billy Graham even would admit that he was fair, fairly inclusive, you know, saying things like, well, you know, God will judge those people differently. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, he will judge them by what they, uh, do in light of what they know. And maybe they'll get into heaven. We don't really know, but you know, we love, you know, we just obey, you know, we just put our faith in God, you know, that kind of a thing. So, um, uh, so other people were, were seeing that disconnect, but they were very few and far between the ones that were doing it publicly and and talking about it.
1: So you, at some point, then you come back, you come back home and is it, and is that then uh, sort of the beginning of an of the next part of your spiritual journey?
2: Well, at that point, um, I got actually got more and in, deeper into evangelicalism. After that, believe it or not, um, huh. I uh, I came back. Um, see, e- my, the evangelical theology just makes you guilty, feel guilty, and fearful, and I wasn't yeah. dedicated. Here, I, here I was a missionary, and I still wasn't dedicated enough. I still, <laughs> you know, still wasn't doing enough. Uh, you know, I had, you know, in my uh, sexual hang-ups, You know, I thought ta- thought about sex a lot. I was a twenty year old. I that's what twenty year olds do who aren't married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I had, um, I uh, I was a real big fan of Keith Green, and he was. Fairly legalistic. I mean, if you ever got into him, uh, you know what I mean. Um, um, I started getting to charismatic circles more. So I went to a church in California um, uh, that was part of the People of Destiny denomination that became Sovereign Grace Ministries. And People of Destiny was uh, very charismatic. Later on, the Sovereign Grace Ministries brand kind of backed off on the charismatic stuff. But in the beginning, they were very charismatic. And uh, I just, you know, started getting into this oh, am I doing God's will? Am I listening to God and, you know, doing everything I'm supposed to do? And so um, I eventually went back to the mission field. Uh, I got some training uh, at uh, Fuller Seminary and at a place called the U.S. Center for World Mission in Pasadena, California um and i wasn't it wasn't like you know southern baptist really conservative training but it was evangelical you know it mm-hmm. was kind of more you know mid 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 uh, moderate evangelical i guess but in my church my church was very conservative so you know i i had both and eventually um i felt like uh because the church was telling me to do a really good job with missions you got to go through the local church. That's biblical, right? That's the that's the best way to do it, right? Don't mm-hmm. go through a mission agency. Go through the local church. That's what it, it talks about in the New Testament. Okay. Well, yeah, that's true, but you don't have to be legalistic about it either. <laughs> so, so, anyways, I I met my my wife in in California. She had a similar journey as mine. We got married. We trained together. And we eventually went back to Africa, uh, to uh, Malawi, and worked with another Muslim group there. And we were there for actually five years. So um, I kind of got into it even more. But wow. all along, there's always these red flags that go up. You know, every once in a while, something will happen. And so those were occurring as well. Okay, so so
1: so now you come back from that second missionary experience and now you're back mm. again and is this is this the time when things start yeah more questions start piling <laughs> it, up
2: this is the this is the big the the beginning of of the end it was the it, but the but it lasted a long time i mean so i i would say that when i came back um i went into graduate school i went to eastern college which is where tony campolo taught at the time yeah and uh, got a master's degree in in uh, economic development because I really I really liked the 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 development work I was doing community development little micro loan projects agricultural projects that's what I really loved I didn't like the evangelism and the church planning. you know we we mm-hmm. we supposedly planted a church in Malawi etc um, so I went back and I went into that but I had gotten totally burned out and I worked with someone who was um, Basically, uh, I guess I would call the person a control freak, uh, and he was very—he cons- was—he was kind of cutting-edge missions, but very controlling, um, in, uh, spiritually and, and emotionally abusive to people. Um, and it was a—it's a—it's a long story, but I came back burned out, clinically depressed. Uh, my wife and I weren't on the same page with a lot of things, including whether we should go back and keep working with this with this, um, this group. And so, so eventually I, uh, I just decided I couldn't go back to the mission field. I had to take care of myself because I was about, I became, it was becoming a basket case. Got some uh, counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I got, first I got some Christian, uh, I got some uh, Christian counseling. I got, uh, um, I got some of it was bad and some of it was good. And Um, but I really, uh, started, that's when I really started to question things. So my, my theory is that you don't really change, uh, when you're entrenched in something unless something very painful or something very emotional happens to you. Mm -hmm. So I had something both painful and emotional happening to me. And so I was willing to, to look, uh, and research and, and, and think about what I really believed and why was I experiencing abuse? You know, why was are things so legalistic in, in, in Christian circles? You know, why? You know, you know what's with the doctrine of hell? That that's totally, you know, doesn't make any sense with what I've experienced, etc. All these different things, and started kind of on a road of searching things out and and trying to come up with something that made made more sense to me and gave me peace.
1: Now what was so you know you're starting to you're starting to ask these kinds of questions did you was there some reading that you did or some research that you did which finally helped you become aware of like like what is the historical setting of the judgment language of Jesus and the the words like Gehenna and Hades and Sheol and 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 right. all
2: of that when did well, you start getting into Yeah I didn't I didn't tackle the doctrine of hell until a little bit later. So, I first got into um, uh, well, legalism in the church. Uh, you know, why are we so legalistic about um, sexuality? Why are we so legalistic about religious codes of conduct? Things like that. Um, I got a little bit into looking at the church. You know, what what was the earliest church like, and why is and discovering it's very different from modern churches. Um and then um I think what and then I it, got into the it,
1: what was it about yeah, the ahead. early what was about the early churches that was different
2: Well um first of all it was non non-hierarchical I mean there was no you know senior pastor and associate pastors there were no professional clergy um there was uh there was no there were no institutions there were no denominations um, people met in the home or in the courtyard or whatever, wherever. Um, it was a gathering of people. The word church actually just means gathering. It doesn't mean… Yeah, ecclesia, that ecclesia word. Yeah, ecclesia. It's actually the same word as used in the book of Acts to describe a mob of people that came after Paul. So they don't say, hey, the church came after Paul. <laughs> right. <laughs> they say a mob came just, after Paul.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just a gathering or a gathering came after Paul.
2: A gathering. A gathering, a gathering came off after Paul. Right. Yeah. So um, and uh, and so anyways, yeah, it's just and, and then and then later on, I got into Frank Viola and start reading his work. If you've read him about he wrote a book called Pagan Christianity, and it talks about the roots of, of Christian church traditions and where they came from and how they're not really they didn't come from the original model. Well, that's right. one of so, the things
1: that, that comes out in your work is the word history over and over again mm-hmm. is the word history. And that seemed to be really liberating to you to just go back and do the history of all this and get a chance to discover just the process by which you go from the early, early centuries of Christianity to what eventually became the, the Western Christian tradition in all of its various forms.
2: Right. I love I love studying history and history opened up a whole new world to me because I mean, think about it. I mean, um, when you were an evangelical church or any of our listeners, uh, if you were uh, are in or were in an evangelical church, um, how much do they teach you about the history of Christianity? They might they might say, well, the Reformation, they might they might talk about that. But they they don't go back very far. They don't go back to the beginning. Well, they say, well, we're reading the New Testament. We don't need to go back to the beginning. But what I'm talking about is this Bible that we put in our hands and we read. When did that? When did they decide that was the Bible? And then if you study history, you find out. Well, the New Testament they decided in the fourth century. (laughs) It's like three hundred years after Christ. You know, they decided okay. This is this is the list of scriptures that should be in in what we call the New Testament. And then you discover that you know there were local lists of scriptures before that. There were you know one you go over to one group and they had their list of scriptures. You go to another group somewhere else in another part of the Middle East or the East or the West or Western Europe and they had a different set. And so people um did not view the scriptures the same way as evangelicals teach you to view the scriptures. People were not saying, Oh, we've got the, we've got, there's only one list that you can look at and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there were some, there were some uh, common things in the list, like the four gospels that we know, they were fairly common, but they weren't mandatory. Like, so some, some Christians preferred just the book of John and that's all they read. And others Preferred Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they didn't look at John so much. So mm-hmm. you know, there were just there was disagreements about scriptures, but there wasn't a disagreement necessarily, at least in the beginning, about um, you know the way of life that Jesus taught. So it's it's very interesting. You go back into history, and and there were there were scriptures that were, um, you know, books. I could name books that were. Uh, people considered them holy scripture, but they never made it into the New Testament. And then there were other lists that didn't include all the lists, uh, all the books in our New Testament. Uh, and people disputed them and said, no, I don't think that should belong on my list. <laughs> like the yeah. book of Revelation. Half the church basically rejected the book of Revelation.
1: (laughs) Well, that was interesting for me to find out that the book of Revelation was in some list and not in other lists. And it it sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, that just discovering all of that. Now, tell me about what it was like when you discovered that in the early history of Christianity in the first, you know, three or four centuries, that as the church was trying to understand what its doctrine was going to be, it came to an understanding there would be judgment. But they they allowed a variety of opinion about what that judgment would ultimately be. And that there was quite a good group of them that thought that the judgments of God would all be restorative since God was love. And and they, they read in 1 Corinthians that God would be all in all. And so they put that all together as a theology of universal restoration. What was it like when you found out that that, that, had, that there were early Christians that had been thinking these types of things?
2: Yeah, that was very interesting because you know, we're taught that every, that you know, all, all all Christians all believe the same all true Christians believe in hell. All true true Christians believe the same way about the Bible, etc. So, mm-hmm. for as far as judgment goes, I think there's two things that really stood out. Number one is that the words, the the, the words that we translate into the English language, uh, hell and eternal punishment and sometimes eternal destruction. Um, those are not good translations. So you go back and you go, well, wait a minute. This word here in the Greek, Gehenna, which is the garbage dump outside Jerusalem, um, and and had a history of, of uh, the uh, Jewish people disobeying God in that place. I think they sacrificed uh, to Molech or something, some false god yeah. or something. and sacrificed children. Children, even right, yeah. yeah and so that was associated with that, and it was in the Jewish mind. It was associated with God. You know, it was associated with judgment, but it didn't have necessarily have an eternal uh, attribute to it. It wasn't the afterlife. It it was like that's where if God came, if you were destroyed, they would b- bury the the dead bodies and put them in Gehenna. You know, I would not bury them, just throw them in there and burn them. You know, right? <laughs> that's where the dead bodies would end up. Right. But that's not uh, it, They weren't thinking about the afterlife. They were thinking about, uh, you know, that's the place, the metaphor for judgment. Right. And so that's Gehenna. And it's not, you know, eternal hell. its It's a different concept. And then there was another phrase, eternal punishment. And then I—that was really blew me away because the word "eternal" um, doesn't mean forever. It's—it's it's a bad translation. It means um, the uh, uh, pertaining to an age. So, mm-hmm. and then the word "punishment" in that passage uh, in Matthew, uh, the sheep and the goats, um, actually is a is a restorative type of correction. It's not uh, retributive. It's not. There's another word for retributive punishment, uh, "temoria" in the Greek, yeah. and and the writers of the of Matthew did not use that word. They used the word "colossus," which means um, you know, uh, uh, restorative correction. Or and, and actually, one translator translate that translates that phrase, rehabilitation of the age. So it's mm-hmm. like God's rehab program, <laughs> yeah. and a rehab now, program has hope because people <laughs> go and get rehabilitated, and now, it's uh... not
1: like a hell. <sighs> now, what about the uh, when you began to discover that the that sort of the the horizon that Jesus was talking about was was the horizon that his generation, you know, would experience that that the destruction that he was warning people about. I remember when, you know, I had been, people were talking about the, that Jesus was talking about the end of the world, Uh, but then I noticed that what he said in Luke's gospel was, when the Roman armies come, do do not go into the city, go for the, head for the hills.
2: Right, right. If
1: if it's the end of the whole world, heading for the hills is not going to do you any good, but... If you're in that part of the world and the Roman army is advancing and you think you're going to be safe in Jerusalem and you're not, that's actually practical advice. I mean, that's, that's right. practical right. advice like do not go into the city. That is not but you would think that that the city would be the safe place. And so what Jesus right. was saying is no, it's not going to be the safe place. Right.
2: So evangelical theology has a way of taking those kinds of passages and twisting them and putting new meaning in them. So they always say, well, you know, Jesus was talking about both something in the in the next generation and the afterlife. <laughs> he was, you know, they, they come up with this way of harmonizing their theology with what Jesus actually said. But if you like you said, David, if you just look at it at face value, what is and here's where the literalists, the Bible literalists aren't literal enough. Because they won't go back they won't look at it carefully and say, well, what did really Jesus say? And what what would make sense in light of what Jesus said? And, yeah. and then if you did that, you would find out that, you know, in Matthew, it also says all these things will, uh, uh, will occur before this generation passes away. And, and then, like you said in Luke, when you see uh, Jerusalem surrounded by armies head for the hills. Um, so that was a really interesting study for me because I was really fascinated with the times. Remember I told you the late great, uh, maybe I didn't mention this at Expo oh, yeah. 72 the late great planet earth was the, t- was one of the top hot books at that Jesus right. festival. And, you know, that was a hot book all through the seventies. And, and even in the eighties, all these other end time books would come out. And so, you know, I was really into that, but I, but I had trouble with it. So, yeah. learning this history was really eye-opening and very refreshing to learn. Oh, wait a minute! You know, um, uh, you know, actually, the people uh, in, in that story—the ones who are left—you uh, know, the ones who were. Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting it mixed up with something else. But, but in that story about you know. The, the tribulation, right? Mm-hmm. The tribulation was the Romans coming in to uh, battle to to come against the Jewish people who had who had started a revolt against the Romans in the late sixties, and then the Romans coming in and destroying Jerusalem, squashing squashing the revolt, and and destroying the city and the temple, and that story is actually in a book uh, by a, a uh, Jewish historian named Josephus. And he wrote uh, a Jewish history. At couple, the time. Th- no, he's two, not like a modern books. historian. He wrote no, it at this the time. He's yeah, an ancient what, historian. Yeah, he was an ancient historian. I think he wrote it in the late one, uh, late uh, first century, I think. I it believe. wasn't too far after it happened. Yeah, because he experienced it. So he was probably in like in the 80s, 90s, 100 or something, 80. Mm-hmm. He wrote this book, a uh, series of books, and one of them was called The Jewish Wars. And it talks about, you know, what happened and the Romans attacking and everything. and And, and so many things that he says actually dovetails right into what Jesus said. Like he said, yeah, there were famines, there were earthquakes, there were you know he wasn't talking about what Jesus was saying he was just saying oh and then and this time this happened and this time this happened mm-hmm. you know and so it's very it dovetails into what Jesus said i know so i, I talked
1: to i'm i'm more on the um, you might call me a mainline a mainline protestant the more progressive sort of end of christianity and mm-hmm. so when i went to uh, you know when i went to seminary we 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 learned all these uh we learned all these things But what was interesting to me is, um, you know, and I have uh, my view of Scripture is that there's a lot of humanity in Scripture, and that actually helps me relate to Scripture better. You know, but there are some people who think, well, you know, Scripture is, you know, 100% divine. It's every word is is the word of God. But what was interesting is that as I've been investigating Christian universalism and going to conferences, I run into lots of people who have a a absolutely literal view of inspiration, who take the Bible completely literally, Uh but they have really started looking into this, you know, a better understanding of the end times, how a lot of that was around the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Mm Mm-hmm. And looking at all of that, and looking at the judgment language in the actual setting of Jesus, these extreme—what I would think of as extremely conservative Christians—are embracing Christian universalism because it actually makes better sense out of the out of not just the judgment texts, but also the texts that talk about, um, you know, as as all have, uh, you know, or. Are in, in are involved in the sin of Adam, that but that that Christ has come and where sin abounded, mm-hmm. grace abounded even more, and all those texts that talk about right. a universal right. kind of uh, possible restoration. So mm-hmm. you have in this and now some of the people that are leading this charge for a uni- Christian universalism are I would have thought of twenty years ago as sort of hardcore fundamentalists. And now yeah, right. <laughs> some of these same people are turning around and being some of the foremost advocates for Christian universalism.
2: Well, I, I know I know that's true. Uh, I haven't met very many of them. Maybe you've met more of them than I do. I have, but I, I, I was on the board of the Christian Universalist Association, and I know that, you know— I know that there were those types that are, that were part of our organization and every once in a while we go, Oh, Oh wow. <laughs> you're you're a yeah. universalist, but you still believe this and you know, something else that they're very well." I, meant, yeah, I, about.
1: Met, I went to a conference, that conference in Denver at Peter Hyde, the sanctuary. Yep, I Church. was there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I met somebody who was firmly convinced that the world was 6,000 years old and that Jesus mm-hmm. would save all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and you know, this is, this is very fascinating because the reason is, is because People, um, you know, people come into what we call deconstruction, where you, you're you a very conservative evangelical Christian or you're a fundamentalist, and you start questioning things, but they come in at different points. So someone right. might, you know, who you're describing people who come in and start deconstructing the doctrine of hell, but they're going to hold on to all these other things. Right. Six, the earth is only 6,000 years old or whatever it is, you know, they may have a very conservative view of homosexuality or whatever but right they they believe in universalism and that's okay because and that's one of the things we have to realize is that people are in different stages we're all on a spiritual journey and you know i took me years to make to come to where i finally settled but and i'm still learning and it, it just you know you have to be patient with people and understand where they're at and don't think that oh well if you believe this, you really should believe this over here. while, well, you can tell them about mm-hmm. that, but be patient with them about it. You know
1: one of the things and, I like about your one of the things I like about your book is you don't really feel so your book, uh, the Craft Brewed Jesus book, is that you don't really feel like you're getting preached at so much by the book as you're getting to just overhear a conversation, like a group of people that are in process,
2: yeah working right.
1: of this working all of this out. And I, right. I appreciate it. I appreciated the whole dialogue idea and the whole, the whole sort of setting where you guys are in a, in a pub up in the Northwest and <laughs> having your micro brews and just sort of being out of a formal context and just kind of let your hair down and be relaxed and kind of just really talk about, about things and so I thought that was a in in the in the wide range of topics that you actually, right, discuss you know, in that book that, is very impressive.
2: Yeah, I, I and I got that idea because it was true. I mean, when I first started to um, at, at some point, I came. I left the church. Um, you know, when I left the church, you know, you'd leave and then you would go to find a better church down the street, and then and then eventually I'd leave that one and then find another one, and then finally yeah. I just left. So that this is, I've, I'm done. I'm a, <laughs> but we found a, a better way of talking about Jesus and theology and spirituality, was and that was in the pub. And, and because uh, a group of my friends were, we were into craft beer and, you know, mm-hmm. we were asking the same kinds of questions. And so let's go to the pub and talk about this. And then we found out that there's actually a movement it has been going on for years, a pub theology movement. And gone to a lot of good groups with who run pop theology uh, meetings, and we had one for a while. We had one in, in, in where I live near Seattle for about three years, um, and we still do that, but we don't do it formally anymore. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a great, and I got the idea f- from that. And so both of my books are like that. If you if you <laughs> I'll give my shameless plug. If you if you're interested in my story, Confessions of a Bible Thumper is the first book. And it's the only book in the world with a picture of a of a of a Bible and a beer on the cover. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so the ha, half the story is about it takes place in a pub, and we're having conversations. And I go through a lot of the things that you know you and I are talking about, David. All, you know the Bible, church, the end times. I uh, mm-hmm. get into uh, addressing homosexuality and what does that really? What does the Bible really say about that? And and uh, universalism, of course, and uh, hell and so forth and a lot of different things. And then in the other and then in the second book, uh, it's got that same theme, except we're, we're like, you know, every chapter has a topic. And then at the end of the chapter, it's uh, it's kind of like a little conversation takes place, not necessarily in a pub, but it could be in someone's home or somewhere and we're have, we're just yeah, sitting around second, relaxing second, and talking.
1: When you say this, when you say the second book, you mean the craft brewed Jesus.
2: Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm, yep. Well, what I, what I, what I thought was interesting about that book is whether an individual reads it or a group works through it is that um, it, it really sort of follows a group of people and maybe your journey too, is you're just, you're just, you're looking at everything. You're just, you I remember when uh when I read it uh I thought wow he's tackling that one wow he's tackling that one okay okay well he's going to go after that one too okay well I guess he's just going to you know <laughs> I guess he's just going <laughs> to go through all of it in one book and have all of the have all of the discussions but you know this podcast is really focused on the question of universal salvation universal restoration right right and uh so what talk a little bit about that, about how you came to that, how you came to that understanding. Was that gradual or did it just land on you at one moment? What was that process like?
2: Yeah, it was definitely gradual. I mean, you know, I was always uncomfortable with, um, I mean, I I love to read the New Testament and Jesus was so compelling and, you know, compassionate. And then all of a sudden he'd say, uh, if, you, if you're angry with your brother, you're in the danger of going to hell. And they're like, what? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make sense. You, that's not the personality that, that I fell in love with. What's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I always had the, and then of course I shared my experience in Africa, you know, questioning the doctrine of hell in light of meeting real Muslims uh, in, in, in the world and realizing that it just didn't make sense, that we could love these people And supposedly, if they don't fit into our theological belief system, if they don't accept it, they're going to go to hell, you know, and it all ties back into the and And the reason why I uh, I'll just give as an aside, the reason why I I tied a lot of things together in my books is because if you if you uh, um, address universalism, it's it's connected to the end times. It's connected to the way you look at the Bible. It's connected to the church. It's connected to everything because mm-hmm. it's a whole package. And you're, if you, whether you do it uh, one, you know, layer of the onion at a time, or if you do it like all at once and you look at everything, it, it, it starts to make much more sense when you look at the whole perspective. And so, um, but as far as my, you know, my journey of, you know when 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 did I start really questioning universe uh, the doctrine of hell? you know like I said I, I, I developed an inclusive theology for many years, but I still mm-hmm. believed in hell. I, I figured well, some people must go to hell, I guess you know mm-hmm. who am I, you know who am I to question the Bible right? right right And then when you when I started studying history I thought, wait a minute now i'm I'm a person who can question the Bible because I just learned from this Greek scholar, that these words are mistranslated, you know? And I learned from this person, the history of Christianity that there were, you know, there's a book written in the 1800s that says, I know you're familiar with it. It says something like um, uh, Christian universalism, the prevailing view in the church for the first 500 years. You know, it's like, and then you go into that stuff and you look at it and, and you go, oh, okay, this makes more sense. And, and uh thomas talbot uh have you read his book inescapable oh, love yeah, of the god in,
1: the the inescapable love of god that was that was for me reading when I read that book i uh in two thousand eleven two thousand and twelve i just i went through and and I just read all of the things that had been written in the last several in the last ten ten twenty years about christian universalism and Talbot's book was one of them i read and when I got through with that I thought huh think i might be a christian universalist yeah
2: (laughs) well what i (laughs) what i really love about his book is that he goes through the three major paradigms for the nature of man in the afterlife calvinism armenianism and universalism Mm -hmm. and he goes through and he starts i forgot which one he starts with probably calvinism but he starts with one of them and calvinism let's say and and he just starts dissecting it, saying, "Wait, if this is true, then you know Jesus really, God doesn't really love everyone." And he he makes the case, right? And then he goes through Arminianism. If this is true, then you know uh, we don't have any security, and and we don't know. Uh, some people are still going to go to hell because because we didn't choose right. We didn't, you know. God doesn't have any way of drawing everyone and restoring everyone. He's powerless to do that. And, and then finally you look at universalism and you're like, okay, it's like everything fits and it makes a huge case for it. And that really impacted me a lot. Uh, yeah. I think one of, the
1: that, one of the things that I thought about is that you go to seminary and you do a lot of biblical studies, you do a lot of thinking about different things, um, but, but you don't really do philosophy, and logic, and so yeah, uh-huh. you can right. have this. You can have this biblical theology, and it's got a whole bunch of stuff in it, but it doesn't necessarily make any sense when you all put it together. So, for instance, like I would talk to people about my about my, you know, what I was thinking, and I would say, uh, well, I, you know, I'm thinking about grace. Like for instance, do you do you believe that uh, that uh, God? Well, do you believe that uh, that grace saves? You believe in salvation by grace alone. And they would say, well, yeah, I think so. Amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. And mm-hmm. I think we I think we sing some worship songs that talk about by grace alone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I think I do believe that salvation is by grace alone. Then I would say, well, do you believe that uh, that God gives grace to all? And they would say, yeah, you know, God so loved the world and gave his only begotten. You know, God, yeah, God mm-hmm. loves the whole world. So God, then I would mm-hmm. say, well, uh, do you believe that some will be lost forever? And they would say, yeah, well, the Bible teaches that some are going to be lost forever. And <laughs> right. and I say, okay, well, okay. But if you think about that, you've got a logical problem on your hands. Because if, mm-hmm. if grace alone saves and grace goes to all and some are going to be lost forever, when you think about it, logically, that doesn't all work. You have to give up one of those. Right.
0: You yeah, know, and, that, and-, and
1: yeah. yeah so working at the, working at the logical part of it. And then the philosophy also asked those questions about, well, if it's this way at the end, then it had, then what was it at the beginning? And mm-hmm. if it's at the, you know, it, it just, it makes your it forces your theology to be philosophically and logically coherent. And
2: yes. Right. So, yeah. And, and, and my experience, um, you know, Pretty smart evangelicals will recognize these cognitive, you know, dissonances <laughs> and, they'll mm-hmm. and, and if they're really committed and they're not open minded, they'll come up with a, a way of explaining it away. So they'll say, for example, Oh, everything you said is true, but people just choose to be separated from God and go to hell. And then, you know, then they'll come up with, you know, the C.S. Lewis story about the, great divorce uh, where, you know, this, this, in, in this story uh, a bust goes from heaven, excuse me, from hell to heaven and the inhabitants of hell go to heaven and they don't like it and they want to go back. (laughs) Yeah. And so this takes, this takes God off the hook. right? Right. Right. So it's like, Oh, okay. God loves them, but they're just, they're just really, really stubborn people. And they love being in hell they'd rather be in hell than being in heaven. and so they, they come up with all these ways of explaining it away, right and and then you know when you really when you really delve into that you have to kind of delve into that too and you have to realize that wait a minute uh, what is your definition of what heaven is like and what hell is like? okay if hell is really terrible, you know why would anyone choose to go there? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and, and if heaven is so beautiful and why would anyone mm. want to leave? And so, you know, there are some, some, uh, you know, logical reasons maybe you could come up with, but the only, when you look at the universalist picture, picture it's the only one that makes sense. Cause it's like, yes, people are going to be resistant. That's why we have God's rehab program. That's why we have God, you know, putting people through judgment that's not it's corrective it's it's holding them to account and helping them see um the error of their ways and you know you 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 people um uh we're hu- human beings if we're made in the image of god we really do we really do uh, are attracted to love and we really uh want to be accepted and loved and uh have our, um, um, have real real relationships and connections. It's very, you know, it's very attractive to us. And we, we go our whole lives trying to, trying to find it. If God, you know, shows it to us and then, and then shows the error of our ways by holding us to account, it's very natural for us to come back. All right. And so, It's not a, a it's not like a definitive thing. It's too late. You know, remember they used to say, it's too late. You died in an accident. Right. It's too late. You didn't accept Christ. And like God is there like, sorry, I wish you had accepted Christ, you know, that last time you went to church and they had an altar call, but you didn't. So, you know, you're, you're up, you know, I can't do anything about it. Right. Well, that's not choice, you know? (laughs) So why people, if, if, if people, how can people choose hell forever? You know, they might choose it for temporarily, but they can't choose it forever. You know, well, one of the it's things, yeah, you know, it really Natural. gets it,
1: yeah, it really gets hard when you're trying to talk about all of this, and that's why it was so wonderful that David Bentley Hart, his book in 2019 came out that all shall be saved. Yeah, and now, right, right, and now we have a major world class theologian, biblical scholar, uh, philosopher. Uh, who is who is trained and is an expert in multidisciplinary fields, uh, really weighing in and saying, "You know when you look at the entirety of the Christian tradition, there's only been really one way that it's ever been put together that's ever really made any sense right and mm. And then he just very patiently just deconstructs every other every other attempt to make sense out of Christianity other than the Christian universalist mm-hmm. point of view mm-hmm. and and that's that's when i came to the understanding that that christian universalism doesn't just you know it's not just one way of putting the faith together it's i you know this sounds bold to say it but I think it's the only way that it's ever been put together that really philosophically, theologically, biblically is coherent. That makes sense out of the whole thing that fits with the God of love and it fits with the character of Jesus. Um, and man, once you see that. it For me, once I saw that, wow, there really was no turning back. It's not like I'm saying that that people, you know, that people that aren't Christian universalists aren't Christians. But I think it's awful hard to make an argument that in a non-universalist Christianity, where if you say God is all-knowing and all-powerful, if God doesn't save all, it's really hard to make the argument that this God is, in fact, all good. Right. And David Bentley Hart, I think, just nails that argument.
2: Yeah, he does. Yeah. I've read some of his stuff, and he's got a great uh, new translation of the New Testament, too. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, my my wife is a PhD, and
1: she— so she's very sensitive to academic presses. And, you know, you, Yale, Yale University Press is the top event is is, I guess, the top uh, scholarly press.
2: Right. So you know,
1: he didn't he does not just you know, he's not just getting published by by anybody. You know, He's getting published by Yale University Press. This is a this is a top biblical scholar in the world who is. Who is saying who is saying these things now? So, I mean, that's just making me more and more confident that there now is plenty of scholarly evidence uh, for people to feel very confident that this is a, 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 a very acceptable way to be Christian. As a matter of fact, it, it's the it's, what my experience has been is that when people find out about this, you don't have to tell them to be evangelical about it. They just, yeah, right. they discovered, if people discover a God who, a vision of God that they think is truly good, they will tell, they will share it with people because they yeah. believe it actually helps their life and they believe it will help the lives right. of other
2: people. Right. Yeah. Well, it opens the door. It opened a door for me. I mean, it took away a lot of my fears and, and, uh, doubts and, uh, it, it kind of, it just opens it up your mind to, wow, this is, you know, you can actually say, yeah, God is love. And the problem with um, conservative Christianity is that they believe in a two-faced God. You know, they they talk about love and they talk about forgiveness, etc. <clears throat> but the, when the rubber meets the road, their God is two-faced. He's, um, you know, violent one day and non-violent the next. He's, you know, uh, forgiving but he's also got the unforgivable sin and and you're going to go to hell if you don't jump through the right hoops and he can't forgive you under certain circumstances. And so it's, it's really quite remarkable um, when you look at, when you kind of discover all these things historically. Uh, I always say that there's like, there's like four different pillars for the foundation of universalism. There's the, um, uh, there's the, the logical like, you're just looking at the logic mm-hmm. and the reason behind if, if the traditional view makes sense, the, the doctrine of hell, there's the emotional, the emotional would be like my experience with those people in Africa. Like, Oh, I have this emotion for these people. It doesn't make any yeah. sense that there's a hell. And then the uh, biblical, you know, looking at the, the, the translations in the Greek and what did the Jewish people believe? And there's the, the concept of hell wasn't even in the old Testament. it, it, it the, the doctrine of hell, uh, arose, um, you know, uh, from other er- uh, cultures and that and didn't come into the Jewish culture until after between the testaments. And then the, and, and so, and then there's the, um, finally the, uh, from the biblical, there's the historical, and that's when you get into what did the early church believe and, and, you know, uh, what did Jesus really teach in, in the context of history, et cetera? And so all those things are like really, really powerful. And it just like you said, I love I love your concept the the necessity. I mean, and I guess that's what Barton Bentley Hart said, right? He said if it's if the, if Christianity is a credible message, it has to be that universalism is true because it just doesn't make sense otherwise
1: yeah and he says this, he says, and I say this without the slightest hesitation, yeah, right, yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you know, and
0: the right. thing that
1: the thing that some people find his book abrasive, uh because he just you know it it, it 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 basically he just he makes such a strong, definite claim about it that that people are you know kind of upset about it. well, how can he be so? you know, how can he be so confident? How can he, how can he speak in this, you know, with such confidence about these things? But the thing that's really, that's nice for me is when I was growing up, I had these people, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to church really, but every now and then I would go and I would visit. But the people that were speaking spoke with such definite authority. Uh, they did, not they, they spoke like, what they were saying was the only Christianity that had ever been. And it was absolutely true. And it was absolutely what the Bible said. And disagreeing with them was the same thing as disagreeing with the Bible because they were telling you what the Bible said and there was no disagreeing with them. And so right. if you disagreed with them, then you weren't a Christian. Yeah, and so, you, were
2: re- you weren't a Christian or you're rebellious or you're whatever. Yeah. You know.
1: So what's great for me is to have this, you know, this other figure now to come in and speak as definitively and as authoritatively, well, but with, yeah. I with, mean, with such great wisdom and knowledge and, right. and intellectual prowess.
2: Right, and well, I mean, it begs the question. I mean, why do why do the fundamentalist preachers get to preach confidently, and a universalist preacher doesn't able to? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you, you question you question the status quo, and they go crazy. Uh, but, you know, when you read uh, David Bentley Hart or uh, uh, Thomas Talbot or George, Mc, excuse me, um, Gregory McDonald, oh, Robin Perry, Robin, I should yeah, say, Robin Perry, Robin Perry, um, all kinds of different authors, David Artman. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, what I did, you know, what I my, my,
1: I think I did, I did some original work and how I read, how I thought about it and repackaged right, it. Right. But the main thing I was trying to do was make it accessible for people. So that they could go from yeah, me, I'm am I'm a practitioner, I'm a minister, a generalist, you might say. I'm like a general practitioner, but so that
2: I could point them on towards the real, the right. real
1: scholars.
2: Yeah, and everyone who wrote these books, they have a little bit of a different angle. But all I right. think they all come out with a, a confidence because they looked at everything carefully. And man, the case is so strong. It's just like it's got, it has to be this way. And, if, and as a matter of fact, it's a necessity. It's, you know... It doesn't make sense if it's, if you don't see it this way. So that's why people come out so strong about it. Plus, it really does bear fruit in people's lives.
1: Well, speaking of bearing fruit, what are some of the positive things that you've seen about it bearing fruit? And I mean, I've got some stories, but just things that, that you've seen that have kind of confirmed to you that this does bear good spirit, spiritual fruit in people's lives.
2: I think... Uh, the main thing is that I've I really felt like I, I was set free from fear and from um, uh, a um, a view of God that's retributive and doesn't it doesn't line up with the with the Jesus I fell in love with you know so it's it's like oh okay it, things make sense f- things line up and there's a uh, there's a lot of f- uh, evangelicalism is a fear-based faith. In order to get people to join the church, you have to give them carrots and, and but you have to give them sticks too. Mm-hmm. And they start. The good news is really a stick before the the carrot. You know, you got to you got to share the bad news before you get the good news, right? So it it, it, it you know, becoming a universalist kind of opens your mind, frees you up helps you get rid of fears in your life and look at the world differently where you're not all of a sudden, you know, you know, we have this, you know, that was one of the, the motivations for going to Africa and being a missionary or going down to Hollywood and witnessing on the streets that we used to do in California or at the local college and witnessing to people, Oh, these people, they need to hear Jesus. We need to get them saved, you know? And um, it was, you know, this, driving force that you're, you know, you you should be worried about people because they're going to hell or, and, and, you know, this is the only way for them to be saved. And so when you, when you become a universalist, you can relax and you say, okay, you know, it's kind of weird walking up to perfect strangers and saying, do you know, Jesus, you know, (laughs) just love people because they're, you know, God is love, just love people. Don't worry about that stuff you know if they ask you ask you questions about theology when you get to know them fine share what your faith is but there's no there's no driving force to get people saved anymore because yeah people are God isn't God's been doing work in people's lives for years before you showed up so
1: well what I what I discovered with all of this is that once I stopped you know trying to I don't know help people as you put it get themselves saved or get themselves in a position where they felt like, you know, after they died, they were going to go to heaven or whatever Mm -hmm. that was. But once I started this way of thinking, what what I just started talking was about the overwhelming grace and mercy of God. And what I discovered was, is that grace induces faith. So Mm -hmm. I would talk about a vision of God that whose love was triumphant. Who was greater than any than any difficulty that you would ever face, and who was with you even in your darkest moments. And people would just start to think about that. And faith would start to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's grace that induces faith. It's this it's this encounter with overwhelming love and mercy mm-hmm. that that that's transformative. I'm, I talked to one one man. He was he had he had reached rock bottom in uh, alcoholism, and he had met the God of his understanding. And uh, he said, "You know the the God of my understanding that I met at the very bottom. It's the same one that you're talking about with Christian universalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's this God yeah. who yeah. who never leaves you and who's always with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if people get it." it that believing in a love that is that amazing and transformative and powerful just does something in people's in people's lives and that's one of the things i like about doing this podcast and talking with folks like you is just people getting a chance to just listen to these kinds of conversations makes them think maybe god does love me this much maybe i right, can right. believe that not just for me but for all, for everyone and what what would that be like if that was really the central thing that was hap- That we were all in a creation of total love, and that mm-hmm. we were all being enveloped in this. And well, gee, maybe I can love myself, and I can love my neighbor, and I can forgive myself, and I can forgive my neighbor, and just all this stuff starts right. happening.
2: Yeah, if if love is available for everyone, it must be for me. It's you know, it opens up your mind. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Well, so Very that's cool. uh, yeah. Well, uh, so your 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 spiritual. Um, Group hub podcast, mm-hmm. right? And you're you're continuing to do that. What? So what? What? What are you up to? You're you're working on your spiritual Group hub podcast. Well, What's,
2: yeah, what? I've got. I, I my big problem is I have a day job, so <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't put put. I work on my passion full time. I'm I'm trying to make enough money so I can retire, and you know, I actually being a missionary is not very uh, lucrative. So
0: <laughs> I, I,
2: had making to, up to do. I had some making up to do so I can get retired and, uh, feel, um, secure. My wife and I will can f- feel secure in retirement. But my, the big thing I'm doing is, um, the, besides the podcast, which I love doing. And, uh, uh, Keith Giles is going to be on my next one. Um, uh, uh, is, I have I've developed a workshop to help people um deconstruct from conservative Christianity even evangelicalism fundamentalism and I I haven't um I haven't started it yet but I've got a lot of material on my 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 website about it mm-hmm. and so I really want to get in eventually get into that and start offering a workshop for people where you go through a lot of um topics like the Bible, church, um, uh, salvation, and then salvation when we talk about universalism and and kind of give them like some pillars of material historically that helps mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, like start wherever they are in their deconstruction to keep going and be encouraged and realize other people are, are in the same thing. And it's okay. I may be different from someone else. I'm in a different stage. It's okay. We're all learning together and, and helps people get through that and then make up their own mind. Not like, okay, now that you finish, finished, you could join the spiritual brew pub church or, <laughs> mm-hmm. or whatever, but you, you know, but people just make up their own mind, you know, like, um, uh, follow the historical evidence where it leads and, and then, you know, talk to your, your vision of what God is like. And, Come up with your own your own way, and I um I want to be um, helpful for people, uh, but I don't want to be dogmatic about you'll you'll discover where I land uh, theologically if you get to know me, but I'm just as comfortable talking with uh, someone who's still in the evangelical church but's questioning things as I am talking if you go all the way over to someone who left the church and is an atheist now. I just you know it's like, I'm, I'm so I'm I, that's another thing about this way of looking at God is it's like you're not you know hung up about you know people who are atheists or something you know you're not like defensive and you're not like always trying to mm-hmm. put them down and so
1: forth. Well, a lot of know, times you know atheists. we are <laughs> yeah, a lot of times we are not believing in the same God that the atheist is not believing in.
2: Yeah, that's where I, I mean I, I interviewed Bart Campolo a couple of months ago and. And I was, you know, saying, you know, we believe so much of the same things we at the end of the day, we're different, but we already have uh, went through the same deconstruction in so many different ways. And and we don't believe, you know, he, he the God he rejected is not the God that I believe in. You know, it's like right. it's totally different.
1: Well, I just think it fills um, people with so much hope that if if you're living life, and you're believing a God of infinite love that is bringing the entire creation together, and you believe that you're in a creation that is destined for this beautiful future that's going to finally envelop all of us, it really allows you to... I remember when you know this first came to me, um, just looking at people and thinking, everybody is my eternal brother and sister. Mm-hmm. This is a right, beautiful right, yeah. What a, this is a beautiful creation that we live mm-hmm. in and I get to be a part of this. And even if bad things, challenging things do happen to me, I'm believing that God is going to be with me through it and through and, and with everybody. And it just, there was just such this enveloping sense of peace and kind of like, like I don't know, it just felt like. I'm resonating with the truth. It's it you know, mm-hmm. I told somebody mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody that the other day, if you read my book, I try to make a logical argument as much as I possibly can because I want to show that there's a logical, plausible argument that can be made mm-hmm. for this. But it's hard to explain to somebody the intuitive sense that you have personally that you're on the right track. It, I mean it's right. the, it's yep. a gut level kind of intuitive thing. And so for me, it's interesting to find people from different who have, you know, have trod very different paths. You know, here, you trod this very different path than I did yet, even through all of this. And somebody would maybe look at your path and say, how would anybody that went your path ever get to this point? Right. But, you know, but here you are and you seem just very comfortable in your skin, very at ease, very at peace. I mean, you're telling me at one point in your life, You had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, you're a very, you're very peaceful. You're, to me, just seeing how this bears fruit in people's lives and seeing people that are resilient and hopeful and who seem, you know, psychologically, spiritually just very together. Right. To me, that's another thing about this. There, you know, there's just not this, you know, sometimes you meet people and they're just full of this anxiety.
2: Yes. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. No, well, I, I think yeah, that's part of the fruit, and and you know, like for me, um, I I had a nervous breakdown partly because uh, I was believing evangelical theology. <laughs> I had yeah. uh, I was clinically depressed partly because I was experiencing spiritual and emotional abuse from, on the mission field because of my theology and the theology of people I was working with. You know, it's just you know, so. Uh, when you, you know, if, if anything, this this path that we're on that, you know, eventually I think leads to either, um even though uh, some a- people become atheists, like Bart Campolo, he still has the value of the, the, the best meaning you can get out of life is to love other people, right? And so we, we all come to maybe a different... Location, but we all have so many similarities, and and many of us who remain Christians, uh, most of us who remain Christians, discover universalism and how how freeing it is, and how um, uh, historical it is, and how it it logical it is, etc. So, um, anyways, this has been great, David. Uh, yeah,
1: we've had a nice conversation. I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the time we spent together when you interviewed me, and I've enjoyed. This time visiting together. Uh, so let's see. We just want to remind everybody um, about the name, the name of your book. It's Craft Brew Jesus. And give me the give me the subtitle. Uh, Craft Brew Jesus.
2: Way. How how history we never knew taps a spirituality we really need. Yeah, I really like that subtitle. Uh, and what's
1: your website again? Spiritualbrewpub.com. Okay, spiritualbrewpub.com. com. Well, Check out, um, check out Michael's book and his podcast. It's really you know, wide-ranging uh, kinds of discussions. When you say that you're not afraid to talk to anybody, you mean it. You talk to a lot of different <laughs> kinds of people and have really wide-ranging, uh, wide-ranging uh, discussions. And I've enjoyed reading your book and, and getting to know you. So uh, God bless you on the journey. I look forward to times when our paths uh, cross
2: in the future. Okay, sounds good, David. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, take care, Michael. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.